Good morning, everyone. So this is the third Sunday in Lent, this 40-day period that's leading up to uh, Easter. And uh, it's a season in which we, um, we think about what's broken with ourselves and what's broken in the world. It's a time of Confession. It's a time of reflection on our mortality and on death. Um, It's a time where we we try to face the darkness um, in ourselves and in our world. And in this series of messages in Lent, we are facing different aspects of that darkness. And today we're going to talk about dark systems, which is why Beth is up here um, to uh, to talk with us a little bit about systems from her. Um, perspective in some of her work. So, um, kind of give us a give us a big picture. Give us give us a a sampling from your view. If you were to rattle off, I don't know, four or five or six. I know that's a low number. Four or five or six systems that are broken and that hurt vulnerable people. What comes to your mind? That's Okay, so first, I think we need to define systems. Um, until several years ago, I didn't know, I didn't really understand what people meant when they talked about systems of oppression, right? Like, so, for example, racism. I, my understanding of racism was that you're an individual person who has prejudices towards other people who are different skin colors than you, right? And so, um, I wrote a book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Um, and it lays out um, mass incarceration, and it lays out all of these um, injustices, all of these inequalities in the justice system from like being stopped all the way up to people of color disproportionately sentenced longer, um, they, they are more harshly punished than prison, like the whole like from your first interaction with a police officer all the way up to being incarcerated or the death penalty, any of that. There's these inequalities. And so um, that, after reading that book, that was the first time that I really understood like a system, um, I heard someone describe it as like death by a thousand paper cuts. Like it's, um, it's not just one mean racist person being mean to other people. It is thousands of decisions and biases that influence those decisions being made at every step in a process. So that's a system. So um, obviously racism is um, an impressive system. There's um, patriarchy, which um, says that prioritizes men over women. Um, classism is a system where um, you know, that pull yourself up by your bootstraps doesn't acknowledge the cycles that keep people in poverty. Um, <clears throat> so those are just a few of the things. That's ones. really good. That's helpful. Um, so talk about some of your own work, who you're working with, the nature of your work in trying to address um, these broken or unjust systems. Yeah, so <clears throat> I got involved a few years ago, actually after, right before the rally where the Dallas cops were shot, I got involved with an organization called Faith in Texas that organizes around issues that affect black, brown, and poor people. So immigration, education, um, moral economy, which addresses like payday lending, and then my team is the mass incarceration team. And so we do a lot of different things. Um, 
mostly it's policy, um, trying to change laws. So one example of something that we've done is last year we went down to Dallas City Council meeting, um, and I spoke about a law called uh, or an ordinance called fight and release, um, which if someone gets stopped, uh, like just you know a regular. Um, regular police stop for having a broken taillight or something, and they're found with marijuana, the law was that police could arrest them and put them in jail. And so unfortunately, what happens is, jail, if you can't bond out, then you sit in jail. And so there were these stories, these horrific stories about people that were in our Dallas County Jail for like 18 months because they couldn't afford a $250 bail. So like, I mean, think about that, you lose your kids, you lose your job, you lose your housing, like it ruins their lives for a small amount of marijuana. And so the site and lease ordinance seeks to adjust that, to alleviate that. And so basically officers can now give them a ticket and they still have to show up in court. They still get the, you know, it's not legalizing marijuana. They still have to um, answer for that, but they're not sitting in a jail cell and having their lives ruined. Um, and so we actually got that passed. So that's just one example of what Faith in Texas does. Um, they're currently making a big push for black, brown, and poor people to vote, for people that are going to honor them and respect them and um, make policies and laws that are going to help them. So, Talk about some of the challenges you face, the challenges that you see when it comes to fixing or addressing broken systems. So, I think that the hardest thing for me, especially when I first started kind of doing this work, was that um, I'm a fixer, and I'm used to things kind of falling into place pretty easily for me, and so systems are ginormous, and like, if it's death by a thousand paper cuts, then that means you have to go, you know, solve a thousand problems. Um, and so, working against systems of oppression is slow and frustrating, and um, I think that we have to remember that we're not going to like we're not going to solve it. It's not going to be an easy fix. Um, and so that's one of the complications. And honestly, I think that um, we're going to say something about fear. Yeah. So because we want to fix it. Um, you, it's almost like, I'm sorry, so give me a second. You're good. <laughs> um, so you want to fix it. You, uh, um, is there a problem with that, with wanting to fix it? Yeah, so I think a, a lot of times what will happen, especially to white people, so I'll just give you an example, um, is I want to fix it, and I want to fix it the way that I want to fix it. Right? So, like, um, I think the temptation a lot of times is that we want to become good white people so that people of color look at us and they're like, oh, like, she's a good white person. Which doesn't really happen, right? Because the, the metaphor is, like, everyone else knows that the sky is blue, and I've been believing my entire life that the sky is red, right? And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, the sky is blue. Right? Whoa, cool. Okay. Like, hey, hey, Julie, the sky is blue. He was like... Yeah, I know, like, I know. You know, so, like, that's, like, the Black Lives Matter, you know. I think sometimes um, 
I'll give you a sample. I went to vote on Friday, and I have a Black Lives Matter bumper sticker. And as I was walking in, there was this really cool, like, hipster black girl, and I was like, oh, she's so cool. And so we, like, talked about our candidates. And then when I came out, I actually, like, for a split second, I'm like, how can I drive my car around so she can see my bumper sticker? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I was like, that is so, like, she doesn't care. She does not care, like, because I'm not like, woohoo, like, you matter, look at me, like, give me a thousand of that, right? And so, <laughs> so I think, like, and that happens pretty consistently, like, where I have to kind of check myself and check my motivation for doing something or saying something. Um, like, am I doing this so that I can be like, look at what a good white person I am? And I, so I think, like, um, we have to lead into. We have to lean into the fact that we're doing this, and it's going to be hard, right? And it's going to cost us, cost relationships, cost, um, like, maybe your job, cost, it's going to cost us. And so I think it gets hard because sometimes there's not a lot of, for white people, there's not a lot of feedback, right? Like, we do something that costs us, and it's not like we have a bunch of people of color going, woo like, good job, you know, what we're supposed to be doing. So, um, I think that's one of the things that's been hard for me. And then, um, as far as fear, I'm a people pleaser. Um, in specific situations, I can be, pro- like, if I'm standing on a mountainside and, like, speaking to a group of people, I have a lot of courage and can say many things. But if I'm sitting across the table from you and we're in a relationship, then it gets a lot harder for me. So, um, just being honest, like, it has been hard for me to talk about things with my in-laws. I, I don't have much of a relationship with them right now because I don't know how to address or how to approach the subject with them in a way that's not going to end with us, you know, fighting. So, um, I think that when you start looking at systems, I think what white people want to do is we want it to be like, we want to be in the rallies and we want to be wearing our Black Lives Matter shirt. But really, like, what I've heard people of color say, like, no, no, like, we need you to go talk to your friends and family. Like, you need to be talking about this because they're not going to listen to us. And um, I've had to think about that for a long time because that's not the answer that I wanted. <laughs> that's good. Um, talk about Jesus. How does Jesus influence why you're doing what you're doing? How does the way of Jesus um, inform how you approach all of this? So, that's a complicated question. Um, But, I mean, it's obvious that Jesus prioritized marginalized people. Um, And he didn't tokenize them. He didn't help Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman, you know, to say, like, look at me, I'm such a good person. Like, he did it and despite persecution, um, and he did it because it was the right thing to do. And so I, I take a lot of motivation from that, um, that he loved marginalized people and gave them value and worth and um, gave them a voice in a society that did not prioritize them. Mm. Right on. We all thank Beth for her input. You could sit there, or you could go sit over there, or you just hold the mic. You know. Um, 
that's a question I want to talk a little bit more about. And I'll get to that with great fear and trembling in just a minute. So the, the gospel text that we read this morning was from John chapter 2. Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover. Passover was a major Jewish feast. It commemorated Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, the ten plagues, crossing the Red Sea, the story found in the book of Exodus, or in the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, which I'm sure was really big in Jesus' day, you know, around the temple. The tenth and final plague, 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 was the death of Egyptian firstborns. Moses commanded Israel to slaughter a lamb and to paint the blood of the lamb around the doorposts of their houses so that the Spirit of God would know to pass over those houses when he was making his rounds in Egypt. Thus, Passover, uh, and thus the commemoration. We are, in fact, going to have a Passover Seder meal later this month in our homes that's been architected by Daryl Willis, which would be a great way to experience some of the tradition of the Passover meal and, and feast. I haven't heard yet if we're going to be painting blood on doorposts. I guess we'll hear about that or not. Uh, CBD, right. Bring your own blood. <laughs> yeah, BYOB, right. right. <laughs> so... That's right. Passover uh, Seder, B-O-I-O-B. We'll all know what that means. So this is the great feast that Jesus goes to Jerusalem for. Some say more than 100,000 people would travel to Jerusalem to observe Passover. They'd go to the temple, which was the center not only of, of Jewish religious life, but social life. All of their life revolved around the temple and they would go to offer sacrifices and instead of dragging cows or sheep or birds with them however many miles they were traveling uh amazon didn't have like a drop ship option in those days they would just purchase them when they got there and apparently the vendors had made it really easy so that you could come very conveniently um, right to the temple and in the temple courts they would uh, have animals, cows, sheep, birds for sale right there. Uh, will you flip the... So here's a little sketch of the old temple. Um, right in the middle, the gold thing right there, that's the temple um, itself, the, the holy place, the Holy of Holies is in that. Um, at the bottom part, you see this like colonnade thing and um, right, right here in this area, somewhere in this area... Um, this is called the Court of the Gentiles. So that's where you can go, um, no matter who you are. Uh, you, you can Non-Jewish folk, uh, anybody is welcome in that part of the, the temple grounds. You get here, this is the, the Court of Women, which men can go there too, but it was patriarchy. The furthest that women could go um, in terms of the presence of God. Uh, but right here in this area, the court of the Gentiles, that's where they would set up uh, their vendor stations to sell animals uh, for sacrifice. 
And so in order to be able to purchase these animals, you had to have the right currency. You had to have temple coinage. And so money changers set up this very convenient exchange service. All of you have probably, if you've been out of country, you've done the exchange thing. Um, You give them coinage from your home country, your hometown, and for a fee, you can exchange it for temple coinage to purchase animals for sacrifice. This is a really tremendous business opportunity, you guys. Um, What happens when you go somewhere? When there's a limited supply and limited options for purchasing. Like when you go to the movie theater, and the theater is the only place you can buy popcorn and candy and drinks, and it's prohibited to bring any other animals, I mean popcorn, into the theater to watch the great show. Uh, What happens when you go to Six Flags? And the park is the only place you can buy food or drink. Or, let's imagine you want to get gas in uptown Dallas. And there's only this one shell gas station in like a two-mile radius down there. What happens? The price goes up, right? The profit margin increases. There's not enough competition in the market to keep it lower. Most of the people traveling to Jerusalem were likely in poverty. And this created a problem for them. Their religious commitments could potentially break the bank. These business people were taking advantage of the fact that God had commanded people to observe Passover, to offer sacrifice in order to make a bigger profit from it. So Jesus shows up and he sees that all of this is happening He sees what's going on and what does he do? He doesn't just offer up thoughts and prayers, though I'm sure he's got lots of thoughts and he's likely, I mean, he's the son of God. He's in constant communion. He's got constant prayers going on. What else does he do? He unleashes heaven on that place. He finds some cords. He makes a whip. And he starts knocking over animal pens and whipping the animals to start stampeding out of this place. And he's yelling, get out of here! Get out of here! He runs over to the money exchange table and he turns it over. And just imagine the coins spilling everywhere. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Stop taking advantage of people. Get out of here. This place is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've turned it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Jesus is enacting a very visible, very vocal, very physical form of protest. Imagine watching all of this unfold. If you're on the sidelines... And this guy starts running around the temple courts with a whip, yelling and turning over tables. You might think the guy was crazy. If it happened in our country, we might call it rioting. Jesus was a person of color, after all. At the very least, it's disturbance of the peace, a misdemeanor. And depending on the amount of damage that Jesus does, if tables break, if animals run away and are lost, that's destruction of property. That's a felony. That's up to 10 years and a $5,000 fine. Jesus' disciples look at each other and they see Jesus doing this. And one of them says, 
You know that psalm we sing in synagogue that talks about being eaten up by passion for the Lord's house? I think that's what that looks like. Soon the religious authorities arrive and they ask Jesus, why are you doing this? What authority? Where in the world do you get off doing this in the temple of the living God? Show us a sign. Give us some evidence that you have even the least amount of authority to be doing this. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. What? What what are you talking about? This complex has been under construction for the last 46 years. And you think you could rebuild it in three days? Here you've got your classic Gospel of John misunderstanding. They think he's talking about the temple. Jesus wasn't talking about the temple grounds, the place where Jewish folk traditionally understood to be where God dwelt, where heaven and earth met and came together, where the presence of God dwelt, where sacrifice was required to be um, to bring relationship between God and his people. He wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about the new temple, his body, the new place where heaven and earth would meet. The new place sacrifice would be made to restore relationship with God. The new place where the the presence of God dwelt in fullness. That's the temple the religious leaders would destroy. And that's the temple that Jesus, God in Jesus, would raise in three days. So think about think about systems. Think about this story. What implications does this story have for how we respond as Jesus people to unjust systems in our world? Maybe to, as Beth has done, to get to know some people who are um, very much affected by it and see the world through their eyes. Yeah, that's great. Just awareness is a big one. Sure. Other thoughts? I think to add on to what you're saying, I think what happened at the temple when Jesus turned the tables over is that incrementally over, I don't know how long, this activity transitioned into maybe becoming marginal to becoming acceptable. Mm. And it took a radical view of realizing, no, this is not acceptable Mm. to step in and make changes to try to uh, return back to the intentions um, 
of the temple in this particular aspect. I think that goes along very hand in glove mm. with what we're talking about as far as systems go. Mm. It happens so incrementally over the years mm. that it takes a good reflection to realize this isn't right. Mm. Yeah, we can be inoculated. Um, yeah. uh, Daryl, were you going to say something? I'm just thinking that some of this, too, we tend to want to look at systems, American systems, but there is also the system of the church itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus was dealing not only with the nationalistic system, he was dealing with a system of God's people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that Jesus, or Jesus is, he represents the best people. Mm. Right? I mean, mm. that's what Ted, we were talking about last week is, is that the Jews are oppressed people. This is a house, this is to be a house of prayer for the nations, for Gentiles. Yeah. And that, that court was also the only place where Gentiles could come in. So I, I'm, I'm just working that out here in my mind. This is that the, the very, somehow all of that has to break down. Mm. All of those things have to break down. Mm. Um, and that causes more self-reflection as we're talking about. Uh, because, you know, we're good Christians. And, of course, we're not racist. Of course, we're not classist. Because we're good Christians. There's going to be some self-reflection now. Yeah, absolutely. Both accept both things, too. Yeah. One other voice? Ted? Just... I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the, the seemingly just off-the-cuff reactionary, like, out-of-control nature of the response. Like, you know, if I put myself in that situation, it's like, okay, let me become more aware, let me pay attention, it's like, oh gosh, you know, this is a horrible abuse of what's going on here in the temple, it's taking advantage of people, it's messing things up for the Gentiles. I... I should probably say something to somebody about that. You know, let me let me go, let, let me write a letter. Or let File me a complaint. Me. Yeah, you know, hey, <laughs> hey, have you guys considered this? Maybe we could, no, you don't want to do that? That's fine, at least I said something. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's, and, and quite frankly, that's all I'm comfortable doing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, I have a hard time, like, saying, yeah, that's what we need to do is we need to look for systems like this and we just need to barge in and start throwing stuff around and, and like, causing a scene and making a problem. Mm. I don't want to do that. Yeah, no, that's... that's why I love this story. <laughs> <laughs> it gives you permission to be angry. Mm. And it gives you permission to feel those feelings, I guess. And, and maybe it gives you permission to react. But I, I personally love this story and I think... It's because it shows a different side. I think we are to be meek, and I think we are to be um, soft, and I think that's really important and gracious. But there's also a side that you're supposed to have is a strong back that's angry and that wants to make change and wants to do it immediately <coughs> and not wait for, you know, the letters written, yeah. which I think is very important. I think all that is important. I think this is just a side of God that we need to see. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I go ahead, please. Well, this was the first time that 
he'd probably grown up going on pilgrimage to Passover. Yeah. 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 Well, there's probably, I mean, maybe it is less premeditated or less, uh, less uh, spontaneous, more premeditated than we might guess in that, like, you can't expect to do this kind of thing and not eventually get killed. Um, you know what I'm saying? Um, like you buck the system long enough, you speak truth to power, power's going to lash out. Power's going to do what power does, right? Um, so maybe this is. Maybe there is some strategery in him shaking things up at this time. Um, but it's interesting for John and all the other Gospels, um, this story happens at the end and is the trigger point for him to go to the cross. In John, it's right at the beginning. Like it's right up front. Chapter two, this is this is and, you know, who knows? Maybe he does this multiple times. Maybe John's just like, I'd like to put it here instead of there. This serves my purposes better in this gospel. Regardless, uh, you know, Jesus is going to temple. And yeah, maybe maybe he's seen this for a long time. And uh, it's he's ready to to uh, enact a prophetic demonstration to bring it to everybody's attention. Sarah, you had a comment? Dave Chappelle. Did you hear we said Dave Chappelle? what systems do yeah that's right okay so um um what what follows in um this message i share i submit to you um i I don't submit this as a declaration of i'm on high and i figured it out you know and i am your designated spokesman from the lord um i'm working this stuff out okay so um i submit this to you for discernment uh about How we engage unjust systems in our world. Uh, There seem to be two predominant responses from the American Christian community to unjust systems out there. Um, There are probably more. Um, Cut me some slack. The first response is to deny that there are unjust systems at all. Right? We don't. We don't just don't even see them. Um, really, it all boils down to individual responsibility, to personal choice, to my personal relationship with God. The world is not my home and I'll fly away. And so what does it matter anyway if all of this is temporary and going to get destroyed? And yet clearly there are unjust systems and clearly Jesus in this story has something to say about them. 
The second response is to acknowledge unjust systems, speak up about them, and to seek to fix change, to fix and change them through our democratic political processes. Granted, different communities acknowledge different darkness at times and and not others. For instance, some acknowledge abortion legislation, for instance, uh, as an unjust system. And they go after changing that, but they focus less on social issues like poverty or mass incarceration. Others would prefer to focus on exactly those social issues like poverty or racism or mass incarceration. Regardless, though, of the systems one deems important to change, the approach is the same. Let's get policy reformed. Let's get laws changed. Let's get enough votes so we can work the system to change the system. And I I appreciate this response. And to a certain extent, I think it's necessary for sure to advocate for particularly for vulnerable people through political processes, especially if it's going to save some people's lives. On some level, it's a luxury of privilege and affluence to feel like it's not important to advocate for vulnerable people through political channels that exist. Because if you have privilege, as we said, if you are affluent, you're likely not affected as deeply, if at all, by those unjust systems. But this response also has some problems and limitations, not least of which is that the way it plays ball on the terms of our democratic constitutional republic rather than on the terms of the kingdom of God. It runs the risk of being a power grab and aligning with the powers of structure, uh, aligning the Christian community with the powers of the structures of power. And let's just say historically that whole aligning with structures of power thing hasn't worked out so well. From Emperor Constantine to the religious right, it has ended up creating its own dark systems along the way. So I'd like to suggest a third way for your consideration. It's one that Jesus alludes to in this story. The place where heaven meets earth is not in our human institutions. It's not even in the religious institution of Jesus's day. The way that God is saving the world is not through our, our human systems. It's through the person of Jesus, the new temple. And get this, the early Christian community came to understand itself as the body of Jesus and thus an extension of the temple of God in the world. Because of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the church becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where heaven and earth meet, and the way that God is saving the world. Now, let me be clear. When I say God saving the world, I'm not talking about, I'm not just talking about God getting a bunch of individual souls into heaven after people die. I mean to say the way that God is transforming this whole cosmos. Individuals are certainly part of it, but there's this bigger picture. There's this whole world and the systems are included in that. The powers and principalities are included in that. And God is reconciling and redeeming and transforming all of that. That's the real promise of the gospel. And the church then in this frame is a social reality that witnesses 
to this coming kingdom in its life together. The church is less of a lifeboat rescuing people from a world that's going to be destroyed and more like a a bright shining city on a hill that you see and you feel the warmth of its glow. And it's 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 good and blessing when it's lived out among people and when other people are invited to experience it. The church is an alternative politic to the politics of the world. It's a community of justice and reconciliation and self-giving love. It's an alternative system that foreshadows the renewal of all things. And so, if that's true, um, if the church is this alternative politic, if the church is the witness and the demonstration of the coming kingdom of God in the world, problems within it notwithstanding, Our primary response should be to make sure that we're witnessing faithfully in our life together to that reality. That of all places, that our communities of faith would be communities of justice, communities of reconciliation, communities of love and peace and care, um, especially for our vulnerable neighbors, that we're inviting our neighbors into this way of life, to experience this way of life. And that's the proper location for me for for other social political action. Um, when we see the ways that our neighbors are being mistreated and abused by unjust systems, we take care of them within our community. We meet their needs. We, we, we look out for them. We stand up for them. We protest in the public square. We work for change in the public square to the extent that their lives are on the line in us doing that. But we do so knowing that when we speak truth to power, we're often at risk of being hurt ourselves by that power. Our master Jesus allowed himself to be crushed by a great system of power. And that's where our real spiritual power lies in giving up ourselves, in pouring ourselves out for the sake of the world. This is how God is saving the world in Jesus. Um, let's talk more about that, because uh, there's more to there's more to talk about. I'm sure that uh, interacts with you uh, in different ways. Um, my heart, our heart as a community, is, is to face these systems in the way of Jesus and to seek transformation in our world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and rather than stand back, rather than ignore the systems, rather than pretend they're not there or just to say, oh my, they're big and what do we do? Like, let, let's, let's seek constructive ways to engage it, to, to enter in, um, to, uh, to figure this out by the leading of the Holy Spirit. For now, hear the good news. God cares about the whole world. Jesus sees the unjust systems at work in our world. And through his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus has become king of the world. And he has declared victory over the powers, over the unjust systems. And Jesus has formed a people a royal people, a temple of his Holy Spirit, who in their life together, us, are a foretaste of the restoration and renewal of all things that is to come. 
And everybody said, Amen. Amen.